everybody. Welcome to another Let's Talk Parenting podcast. This is our second conversation with Kathleen Leos, who is a neuroscience uh, scientist. Um, Dr. Leos is, uh, has, we spoke to her last time about early childhood education and brain development from pre-birth to age five, and now we're going to move into talking about brain development for school agers. So I think we're going to go kindergarten to fifth grade this time around, and the next time we'll hit middle school and then wrap up with high school. Um, Dr. Leos, please introduce yourself and uh, tell us about you and neuroscience and all those kinds of things, and then we'll get into our school age questions. Well, hello, everyone. I hope everyone's having a great week. And um, it's exciting for me to be here to have the opportunity to talk to you. I'm Kathleen Leos, and I am the CEO of the Education Neuroscience Foundation. Uh, We founded the foundation in 2014 in order to take a look at all of the now lingo brain research that uh, was available beginning in 2004. Five, uh, now up to the current time, and we analyze that research, and then uh, we take the information that's relevant for parents, teachers, and, uh, well, the children themselves, but also administrators, and then we also distill the information into actionable methods and strategies that parents can use at home and that teachers can use in classrooms. So it's been an exciting journey for me, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation and to share another, I guess, a round of uh, current and relevant information, both for the age of the kids and then also the current times that we're living in. Dr. Leah, thank you so much for introducing yourself. I am really impressed after looking at your website for the um, Educational Neuroscience Foundation. I think it is impressive. Um, For those of you who are interested in our last conversation, um, you can find it on LinkedIn, you can find it on Spotify, or if you would like, you can hit me up on LinkedIn and I will send you the the email that I sent out, and that email has um, all Dr. Kathleen's information and also a link to the um, edu, edu neuro, to the website. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know. I know. It is such a challenging name. We had to really fish around to get the right name. We couldn't get the full name we wanted for the website, so we had to find abbreviation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know. I know. I completely get it. Um, so, Doc, one of the things that I asked you when we were offline and something that I'm very interested in is um, Dr. Howard Gardner's research on multiple intelligence. I do know that in education, especially teachers, have equated that with learning styles, but that's not quite correct, is it? No, it's not. You know, and I'm really glad that uh, we started this conversation because there are a lot of misinterpretations, I think, about what Dr. Gardner was working on at the time, And, and later he even said himself that he felt like a lot of his, or some of his work was misinterpreted. 
Um, but going back to the first, the concept of multiple intelligences, you know, when he, when he was, he himself says, when he was a grad student and he was really looking at, you know, why is it that we identify our children and our students according to IQ, and IQ, which is basically logical reasoning and verbal intelligence. And he felt like those two areas to identify someone's level of intelligence was too restrictive. It turns out that part, he was absolutely correct. And so what he expanded the thinking in the field was beyond those two areas into musical intelligence, social emotional intelligence, etc. And so when you take a look at his whole span of six or seven areas, we would now call those areas aptitudes. Um, we all know, you know, kids who are so physically, athletically inclined and they say, my gosh, you know, here's the next uh, LeBron James or Michael Jordan. I mean, just children who really, really take off athletically. Then there are kids who are artistically bent and they, you know, produce Picassos at the age of eight and nine. And so what he's really talking about are the aptitude within a range of analyzing the level of intelligence overall for all kids. And it's not just a narrow field or a narrow area of just looking at logical reasoning A to B to C to D or verbal intelligence in, at what age can, you know, a young child rattle off, you know, 500 vocabulary words that our innate intelligence and our tendency toward things is a much broader definition than what was originally, uh, I would say, probably defined and agreed upon. And he he's correct in that, in that way, because when you then look at how the brain research itself, which is non-invasive, when they put those little caps on the kids and they measure the electrodes and the neurons firing and, and every, all the brain activity through the electrodes itself, then, you know, what they have determined is that the entire brain is engaged in learning all the time. So we even though the brain is divided into two hemispheres, we have a left and a right, that doesn't mean that only reading is taking place on one side of the brain and language is taking place on another side and the math is on another side. The entire brain is engaged in learning. Um, there's no distinction about sides or hemispheres, etc. And the reason I bring it up here is because it proves out what Dr. Gardner was talking about was this broader range of, quote, learning aptitudes. Now, what has happened over time is, whether it was educators or administrators or assessment developers who want to put things in little categories, um, <laughs> what they started to talk about was, well, my students have a particular affinity for a special learning style. My child's a visual learner or an auditory learner or an auditory learner or kinesthetic, you know, physically involved. Well, I, when I do a lot of different lectures and I go through this and it's like, no, nah, none of that is true. That the reason why this is important for teachers to understand is because 
All aspects of the brain are engaged in learning all the time. So when you're presenting materials or information, you want to have as much full engagement with all the different senses and the aspects of learning in the introduction and the manipulation of the material as well as having the kids feed it back to you that then you know that they understand what you've been teaching. And so you're so, going to present your – go ahead. Go ahead, Barbara. Yeah, you're so, so what I'm hearing you say is that Dr. Gardner has nine forms of intelligence, starting with linguistic and going through existentialism. So as a teacher – your lesson should include some of all of them. So, well, I would put his categories here? on the side. In, in, kind of yes and no, in a sense. I would put the categories themselves on the side. And then um, I think where I wasn't clear enough is to say those categories became these little avenues for uh, what they call learning styles, whether the kids are verge, verge visual learner or whether they prefer, you know, just reading and text off a page or whether they prefer involving the whole body like kinesthetic involvement. Um, And so what teachers would then do when they get to differentiated instruction is that they would try to figure out the style of learning that a student has and target that style. And what I want to be clear about is that the style of learning is debunked. That is a myth, that no child has a particular style of learning, that every single child needs all of the different ways and avenues of teaching on the input side, and that's really how they learn. So I would put his categories on the side, but then realized that how it got interpreted was not correct. I got you. And then how it got used was not correct. Or And, and this myth exists even to today, you know, that um, you see teachers thinking that, well, gee, I have to, you know, make sure that I pull in the social aspect for this particular child. The response to that is, no, what you're doing is, pulling in a social or setting up your learning environment so that there's social emotional interaction for all children because they all need the social emotional interaction, not one or two particular children. So, so one of the things that I particularly noticed about Dr. Gardner is he said, he said specifically, all people have all have some type of all of these intelligences. And so it's Correct. not, so it's incorrect to think that, one is prevalent over another, that they're all necessary. Correct. That part is correct. Yes. Is there any benefit then in knowing a child's aptitude? So like you were saying, maybe we have that child who looks like a Michael Jordan or who looks like a Picasso or looks like a Beethoven. Is there any benefit to knowing that this child has that aptitude? Well, uh, yes. I mean, I would say going back to, you know, the first part of the discussion, when you even take a look at your own children and you can see that they are, there's a propensity. They have a leaning toward, say, a particular talent. 
might have one child that's more artistic visually with paints and, and uh, crayons and um, color. When I say colors, I'm talking about within the artistic vein, you know, mm-hmm. just that they like to express themselves that way. Or another child who's just very, very, very active and, and you can tell they've got great hand-eye coordination, they're great on a soccer field or a football field or on the basketball court or volleyball um, or cheerleading, you know, just the fact that, that they are expressing themselves that way. And I would say for the most part, there's, there's an innate ability of most kids that will have an aspect of each one of those kinds of intelligences. But over time, as a parent, you can tell you know, when one child is just really into reading and and understanding life and phrases, and I mean, from from the printed page, whereas another child will gain ex, you know experience knowledge from working more with, let's say, musical instruments or art, you know, clay, et cetera, et cetera. But but when it comes for that's from a parent's perspective. So, yes, it is important to know to answer your question. From a teacher's perspective, you want to be able to set up your learning environment so that all children are exploring all those avenues, all of those avenues, and they're open to all kids. You're not honing in on a particular – you're not defining a child. You're not saying this child only learns visually because that's not an accurate statement and it's not a correct approach when it comes within the classroom. Okay, so what is it that parents can do if they notice their child has this aptitude that they can encourage that uh, that that aptitude and their and, and their child's ability to expand on that? One of the things that I have thought of, and I, I, I'd like your opinion on this, is that if you, I have suggested to parents that if you notice that your child has a particular aptitude, then it might help them to be able to participate in that aptitude before or after their learning experience or the, doing their homework. So that because it's something that they're really interested in, it's something that gets their brain kind of engaged, their intelligence kind of working a little bit, and then when they go to do their homework, they have a they have a little more um, juices flowing, is what I like to say. You know, then yeah. their thoughtful juices are flowing. So give me your your thoughts on that, and any other things that parents might be able to do to encourage that particular aptitude. You know, absolutely, Barbara. I think you nailed it, really. Um, I, I think when parents are aware, and I would say, you know, 90% of parents are aware when you're, we're not struggling with the daily aspects of life, but we are aware of our children. And, you know, we do pay attention. And so I think you're correct. When you notice something that a child has specific interest or particular set of interests, that you're putting them in groups with other kids with the same kind of interest, with a mentor, teachers, role models, um, and activities, programs before and after school, because it, it, it does uh, pique the interest of the child and it does keep those juices flowing. One of the things I would 
add as a side note to parents, because um, I think many of us, myself included, um, we tend to fall into yet another category. We've talked about the positive side and encouraging and being supportive in areas where we know our kids are just thriving or they have a curiosity or a thirst, you know, to gain additional knowledge in a certain area like science. Um, and they're doing science projects or animals, etc. The flip side of that is um, not incur. I mean, to not encourage them in areas that they're not interested in. Oh. Now, we're not talking about the daily learning experience that they're going through in a classroom situation or even at home, but we're, as parents, offering the extra activities. You know, and, and we see it all the time. And, and like I said, I think we're, well, I, I'll raise my hand on this one. I've really <laughs> done this in my lifetime. Um, where we want to encourage a child to say, wow, I really want to see you go into soccer. And after, you know, going to practice in three games, the child looks at you and says, I really hate this. I don't want to do this. And yet we tend not to pay attention or to listen to that because maybe one, two, or either friends or other, you know, brothers or sisters are just, wow, they're so into it, and yet this particular child is not. So I think there's a flip side of paying attention to both the intelligences and the aptitudes, and it's to not push in an area where you, you, where the child is actually telling you, you know, good for you, Mom, good for you, Dad, but it's not me. <laughs> well, and I, I, I think that's very important because I think sometimes we forget that just because our, our children come from our flesh and they are raised in our home doesn't necessarily mean they're interested in the same things that we are. You know, I remember reading a book once about a young man who was very sad because his dad was really into sports, but he was really into science, and his dad was never able to yes. cross that divide to really yes. be interested in science with his son. And, they, it, you know, so they were constantly butting heads because, no, Dad, I really don't want to play baseball. But would you come and, you know, build a dinosaur model with me, and Dad wouldn't do right. that. I'm like, you know, you've got to understand who he is and, and work with him, you know, where right. he is. And so sometimes we as parents tend to forget that, that our children are individual and that their interests aren't necessarily going to be ours. And in order to strengthen and build the relationship, we need to be willing to be interested in what they're interested in. You know, and you just hit on a very key point, even a neurological point. One of the foundational uh, aspects or frameworks of learning, literally from birth all the way through adolescence and beyond, is the strength of building the relationship between you and the learner, whether you're the teacher or the parent or another family member. And it is, it is literally all about relationships. And so um, because in those relationships, you've got all kinds of, within the framework of the brain architecture itself, you've got all kinds of neurons firing all the time. And you're strengthening that capacity to build on those neurons that are firing. Because the ones that don't get used prune away, which is a natural process. Not, there's nothing wrong with that, no disparagement. But, but at the same time, 
children, young people, when I say children, you know, I'm, I'm really talking about the age of zero to 25 okay. because the brain enters its final stage of maturity between the age of 25 and 27. And we often think that kids are supposed to be maturer <laughs> at a <laughs> younger age. But even the CDC has come out about five years ago and said that the final stage of maturity doesn't mean that it ends, but that last phase goes in between 25 and 27. And yes, the brain is flexible and always continues learning. But it's interesting that that you know last piece of decision making, the mature executive function level itself, is um, within that time span for both uh, men and women young men and young women. And, and so when we think about we're building a relationship on which the foundation of learning thrives, it's not only through the early childhood years, but say early childhood, we might say ends at say eight or nine, and then it flips into this you know, pre-adolescence and adolescence and the brain starts into phase two of development. And what's keeping that stable and is that relationship that the parent is building with the child or parents or, you know, caregivers, um, other family members, that they're building and, and strengthening and stabilizing with that child over a long period of time. This is new science, by the way. This is new research. These findings are new. Um, Yes, we can say as parents or grandparents, well, gee, I knew that. I could tell, you know, just from watching my own children. But what's different in this is that this is now empirical science, and they've been following these fMRIs over time and actually see how the brain develops and functions over time and what are the influences on positive brain development. And that positive brain development is what leads to, we talk about every child uh, being able to attain the, the his or her fullest potential, and that's what we're talking about. Here's the foundation and the parameters within which they can reach and attain that fullest potential. Fascinating. It's very fascinating, Doctor. And and actually, talking about positive relationship building, I think that right now as we're dealing with the pandemic and we're dealing with virtual mm-hmm. learning and we're dealing with some parents switching over to homeschooling and all of those different variables, what are some of the things that you might suggest parents do to encourage not only the relationship but the learning aspect in, in, in the distance learning and the homeschooling um, that will foster brain development um, during this time when we're dealing with the pandemic? I'm going to talk quickly about three things. One is Dr. Patricia Cool at the University of Washington has done extensive research, among others. She's not the only one. Neuroscientist. She's, there are several that have worked in this area. But the importance of social-emotional learning. And it's both, it's divided into two phases, the early childhood phase and um, I'd say middle school, going into high school. So we're talking about that when the second phase of brain development starts. And um, I, I love this phrase she uses. What we have now learned is that social emotional development is the gateway to learning. So the reason I bring it up as the 
beginning of this conversation is because now we're forced into a situation where in the early childhood space, in the middle school space, and in the high school space, but middle school is the ability for social-emotional learning is minimal, whether it's homeschool or distance learning. And that's one of the things that I think parents need to be aware of and, um, and, and not just aware but careful because during this phase, what I've noticed um, with the pandemic starting back, let's just say start in January, is that tech companies are going into school district schools and, and online and saying to parents, we've got the solution. We know you're home and you're homeschooling and here's the technology solution. And I'm like, absolutely not. It's not the solution. And so are we forced to accept a part of technology and online distance learning for two different age groups because of the situation? Yes, we are. And that's a reality. I've been wrestling with this for months. <laughs> but it's a reality that we all have to deal with. And so with the younger kids, the less they're on the less time spent on the screen the better because the way the brain develops in that early phase from zero to let's say age nine, eight, nine right in there, is learning should be in person, face to face, interactive, highly communicative, play. You know, yes, project-based learning and structure, of course, but even extended seat time in a classroom is not optimal for this age range of child. So now if you have a child forced to be at home and sitting in front of a computer, the worst thing that, that we're asking our kids to do at this age range is to sit in front of a computer six, seven hours a day, even with breaks in between. It doesn't work. And I'll tell you what they found at the University of Washington. They put little ones in front of TV screens, well, uh, computer screens, <clears throat> and they were teaching them language and languages. And um, and these are, you know, little ones from uh, nine months up to about three years, and then they have been continuing their work. Over a 12-week period of time with kids, little ones in front of a screen learning with a visual person, a face on the screen with the same information, whether it was sounds and words and sentences and stories. And then they were following the kids' brains on the MRIs, non-invasive. There was zero learning that took place. Zero. And that when is had terrifying. The, yes. And when they that had the, the kids... Well, with the kids that they then, they took a group of kids, they did the randomized control trials, et cetera. They took a group of kids and then they presented the same material to the kids, the same amount of time over the same amount of time. And so the kids were learning and they were following with the brain scans and they're in person, face-to-face, interactive. There was a 700% uh curve, learning curve, in learning, actual learning that impacted the brain when it's face-to-face. So my concern is when parents are forced in a situation in this early childhood space, let's, you know, talk about zero to eight, nine years old for now. Um, so how do I break that up during the day? If Are there siblings at home? Can I set up a safe play group with a couple neighbors? 
um, you know, got to get my kids up off the screen after so much time and they've got to find other ways to interact, be outside, be engaged with the environment, be engaged with other people in the house, um, break it up the lessons with, and it's hard for parents. I mean, parents have to go to work. So it, we've not solved this. What, what we've discovered are these are the challenges and issues, but it's not solved. You get to middle school, and, and it's pretty much the same, except um, the presentation of the information through the technology is not as daunting. I mean, they do actually learn, but the, but the key for adolescents is they still learn through social-emotional learning. With their peers, they have to make eye contact. They watch facial expressions. They look at body language. This is what I mean by, you know, the whole holistic approach to learning is that your, your whole entire body is engaged in the learning process. This is what's so fascinating about this field because it gives us an opportunity to rethink education, the whole entire process of teaching and learning. Now, go back. We are forced into a situation that no one anticipated. No one, I mean, who knew, right? Right. And so what we have to figure out is, okay, we have this set of information about, you know, the kids really aren't learning in front of screens during, over this amount of time. So how do I present the material and break it up during the day or break it up during the hour? Teachers are, are struggling with this. They, they too understand that this is not optimal, and so they are really struggling with how do I get this information across and have the kids engaged, and yet we're communicating through a screen. They, everybody is struggling with this, truthfully. The other thing that doesn't work are worksheets. <laughs> so, the bane of my existence. I hate worksheets. I think they are just a waste. They are a waste of time. They're completely a waste of time. Um, but those are the, really the two things I wanted to, you know, make sure we covered today is this whole restrictive environment within which kids are forced to learn. And, and I know everybody's wringing their hands over lost learning time based on assessments and scoring and all that stuff. Well, let, but well, I let think me ask you it, a question. You, you mentioned sure. project-based learning. Is there mm-hmm. a way to make that something that, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about, and um, I think I shared with you, one of the things that um, I'm looking into is, is helping to create a project-based hands-on learning kindergarten program for um, a country in the Middle East. And so one of the things I'm thinking about is how do we do how can we, okay, here's, a, here's my question. How can we use what we know about project-based learning and use that in this pandemic with screen time? Is there a way right. to pull, pull those two things together so that the education, even though it's on screen, can also be project-based? Um, the answer to that is yes, and we, we are working on a very similar idea. Um, it, it's like the teachers quote the leader, the kids are receiving the information, 
um, wherever they are. So we're talking about distance learning. You know, they could be in another country. They could be down the street. Uh So it's distance learning. And what the teacher is setting up is a project. And if the kids are not together in small groups, if, you know, if that can't happen, if they're only alone, individualized, and in front of a screen, then the teacher giving the directions about the concept of the project and the directions of the project then breaks the kids up into groups. And they could be virtual groups. And so she steps back, or he steps back either, and, and the kids start within their group, they begin to connect with each other. So they've got FaceTime with each other. And they begin to work on their projects, quote, together within that virtual room. And then they uh, come up with a a paper or um, if they want to display something, um, you know, through the technology itself, a video, and then they display it back to the teacher or uh, what we haven't figured out yet. And I'm not, it does exist, this I know, we just haven't gotten this far in what we're doing, is then displaying it back to the entire group and allowing, it's like a group chat, only visually. Yeah, I mean, I hear that, and I can see that working even with the help of parents of younger children, you know. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and one of the examples that that I'm thinking of is um, how the teacher would work with the students to write a story, and everybody would put their own line in. So if you had small groups of children who had parents working with them to help them to write a story together, that would be a way to practice language, to practice writing, to practice sentence structure, to, to you know, to just, just about everything in that you need that kindergarten, first, second grader to be learning and to be using in a way that is active and interactive. Oh, well, you are so brilliant, let me tell you. The third topic I wanted to cover today was storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> well, that works, okay, storytelling. Well, and and this is exactly what you're talking about because in storytelling, there's all kinds of uh, cognitive benefits, brain benefits for storytelling. So let's do a hypothetical. And it it is project. It can be project-based. It is project-based. And it can be led by a parent or a teacher or both. And so let's say that virtually the kids are in, in groups and First, the parent tells their story, so or the teacher. They tell a story, but it could be a story because it helps children, and, and you could do this in early childhood. It helps kids know about their own history and their own stories. But then you have a child or a young person or a student tell their story, and then you have the teacher and the other students document that story. And then you take the story and you assign characters, and then to the characters you assign lines. So you can see, and then they can individually come back together and they can act out their story using the video, et cetera, et cetera, and post their story, their, their play. And you've hit all of the markers in brain development through this way of storytelling. Um, oh, <laughs> amazing that. that you brought up, like, wow. Oh, wow, that's cool. I love that. 
Okay, Doc, we're coming to the end of this particular session. Is there anything that you haven't shared yet that you'd like to share with the audience um, regarding school-age brain development? Um, I, not specific on that topic, but I think um, what I would like to send you, and you feel free to uh, distribute it to all of your listeners and participants, is the brain benefits of storytelling. And that's even in, I may adjust the title. I'll leave the title the way it is, but um, even in these challenging times of distance learning, <laughs> because, and I may add a few steps to this in the next day or two so that it's not just here are the brain benefits, but here are some steps you can take to actually make it happen. You can do it at home. Um, you can do it virtually. Teachers can do it, et cetera, et cetera. But um, if, if you want something like that for your participants, I am happy to do that. I would love that. And just for those of you who are listening, um, Dr. Kathleen has shared with us a parent handbook on activities that you can do with your child. And she's also uh, shared an, um, an article, Learning Multiple Languages, um, which will be available via, um, I'm going to be doing a, uh, get your words out, Barbara. I'm going to be <laughs> sending out an email, and that email will have all of those messages. So if you would like to uh, get that email, um, you can email me. Well, actually, you could go to PT, the word and, the letter A, one, the number one, dot org. So that's ptna.org. And you can sign up for our mailing list, and you will get that automatically. That, that I'm going to be sending that out on Monday. Um, so to give everybody a chance who wants to go ahead and uh, join our mailing list to, to be, get a chance to do that, um, and then I will send that out following. And I will also add this, uh, this storytelling um, uh, link to that to that website. So, and, go ahead. And, and if I could just quickly, I'm so sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, Barbara. No. Um, but what I think I'll do, I'm looking at the document, and, and I think I'll, um, in a sense, beef it up. So I may have put it in little sections. I'll send it to you, and then, you know, you can feel free to mix, match, and distribute any way that you uh, feel like meets the needs and the desires of your listening audience. Well, that'll be wonderful, Doc. Um, I really appreciate your taking the time uh, to talk to us about brain development and to give parents good insight and understanding about what that means and how they can use it. Um, also, for teachers, would you please again share all your contact information just so that people who have listened to this episode and maybe not the last one can contact you um, with questions or um, take a look at your website. Yes. First, um, I'm Kathleen Leos. My email address, the one I respond to quickly, is my name at gmail.com, and I'll spell it. It's K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N-L-E-O-S, as in Sam, at gmail.com. Kathleen Leos at gmail.com. And the website 
is www.edu-neuroscience.com. And the way that is spelled is www.edu-neuroscience.com. I'm sorry, folks, that we couldn't make it shorter. <laughs> we, were <trying> to, <laughs> we were trying to get edunuro.com, and, and uh, someone in Columbia had taken it. I was like, darn. Oh, no. <laughs> that oh, was no. several years ago. <laughs> Dr. Kathleen, will you please also share your telephone number for those folks who might want to give you a call? Sure. It is uh, 202-731. 0391. Dr. Leas, I want to thank you again for this second installment. Um, I've learned a lot. I'm hoping that our listeners have learned a lot. Um, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's a joy. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, that is another episode of Let's Talk Parenting. We've been talking to Dr. Kathleen Leos about brain development of school-age children. I hope that you have gotten a lot out of this and learned a lot. Again, if you would like to um, get that information via email, please go to ptna1.org and sign up for our mailing list and I'll make sure that you get that. So one more time, that's ptna1.org. Have a great day and thank you so much for tuning in. Bye.